Thanks to Bambi for supporting this podcast. HR managers aren't cheap. In fact, their salaries average $75,000 a year. Go to Bambi.com slash dream job right now to schedule your free HR audit. Also, thanks to BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash dreamjob. Start living a better life today. We're also supported by Amazon Music. Amazon Music is a streaming platform for both music and podcasts. To try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days, just go to amazon.com slash dreamjob30. And thanks to Movement. Movement has expanded into blue light glasses that protect your eyes from screens, minimalist jewelry, and more style essentials that don't break the bank. And on July 20th, Movement is celebrating their eight-year anniversary by running a huge site-wide sale. Go to mvmt.com slash dreamjob and enjoy 28% off. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. So yesterday I posted on Instagram, please cancel my subscription to your issues. And that is a callback to Monday's episode with Terry Cole. How many of you heard Monday's episode? It was so good. If you haven't heard it yet, it was truly life-changing for me. We talked about being a people pleaser, overcoming being some kind of a codependent where you're taking on everybody's stuff. And boy, did that hit me like a ton of bricks. I so, so need to learn to stop being as Terry says, an over-functioner and an over-giver and an over-performer because it's exhausting. It's totally exhausting. Speaking of something that I think will be fun for you guys and hopefully lift you, next Thursday night, I'm teaming up with one of my favorite people, Miss Sherry Salata. Sherry was the executive producer for The Oprah Winfrey Show. She was also president of Harpo and president of OWN. And before she did all those fabulous things, she was actually managing a 7-Eleven. Yeah, she was managing a 7-Eleven and then went on to basically have the biggest job in TV talk show history. We're going to do this workshop next week. It's going to be free. You can go to kathyheller.com slash Sherry, S-H-E-R-I, grab your spot. It's going to be so good. And we're going to help you figure out how do you design your dream life? How can you do what seems impossible, but actually take the next step and do it? We're going to get all of this in next Thursday night. It's going to be 5 o'clock Pacific, 8 o'clock Eastern. It's a free workshop. Come and join us, kathyhow.com slash Sherry. That's S-H-E-R-I. I think you guys will love it, and I cannot wait to see you guys there. We'll be hanging. We'll make sure we leave time for Q&A. It's going to be really fun. All right, well, today you're in for a real treat because my dear friend Wayne Fetterman is back on the show. He's an Emmy-nominated stand-up comic. He's an actor, an author, a producer, and he's a professor at USC. You might have seen him on shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm and Silicon Valley. He's been in movies like Step Brothers, Knocked Up, Legally Blonde. He was also the head monologue writer for Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. He co-produced the Emmy-winning documentary, The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling. And now he's producing a George Carlin documentary for HBO, which is going to be so awesome. Wayne was actually the first person I ever interviewed for this podcast. So if you haven't heard that episode, you should definitely take a listen. It was all about how he's made a phenomenal career in comedy. And there were just some great takeaways from that conversation. This time, we're going to talk about Wayne's new book. It's called The History of Stand-Up from Mark Twain to Dave Chappelle. And it chronicles the whole evolution of this American art form. It's such a fascinating read. So go get your copy. Wayne and I will actually be doing a free Q&A about his book next month. So if you want to join us and hang out, you can sign up to join us at kathyheller.com slash Wayne, W-A-Y-N-E. Also, Wayne has an amazing podcast. It's called The History of Stand-Up. Wayne and his co-host, Andrew, look back at some of the most incredible, interesting moments and places and people in stand-up history. They're working on a new season now, so you can catch up on all the episodes they have. Wayne is one of the funniest people I know, and even though he specializes in self-deprecating humor, he always has a way of brightening up my day whenever I talk with him. You guys are going to love this chat, so without further ado, please welcome the hilarious Wayne Fetterman. Wayne Fetterman! Oh, why? I have to shout it! (laughs) (laughs) Do it. I think you're like the most delightful, endearing, adorable, hilarious... And for anyone who uh, hasn't listened religiously to all 450 shows we've done, Wayne was the first person I asked if I could interview, and he very kindly said yes before I was a big to-do of any kind. And so you guys can go back. We'll link to that episode. It's enjoyable. Um, But I'm so glad that you're back. And you're back because I like to have an excuse to spend time with you. But you also did another cool thing called Write a Book, which we're going to talk about. Before we talk about the book, I think it might be cool for people to 
get a little bit of background if they haven't heard that other episode. You've been doing comedy for decades. Yep. It's not an easy thing from what I've been told. And this all kind of will we'll, we'll dovetail nicely into the book, which you wrote, which is about the history of stand-up. Yep. Let's first look at your history of stand-up. Why the yes. heck did you yeah. decide to do such a difficult thing? And how have you sustained? Well, one, I never looked at it as a difficult thing. I just looked at it as a, like a commitment thing. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Even in high school, I guess it started in school. I got way more approval for being a funny person than I did at home. And so I I liked school. I know I'm one of the weird, like a lot of comedian friends of mine are like, I hated school. I was disruptive. I was constantly in trouble. And I was the other, like, I loved it. And anyone can make the kids laugh. It's school. It's like making someone laugh in church or synagogue. That's for you. But if you can make the teacher laugh and the kids laugh, then you're on a different level. And that was always my goal. So I was like, teachers liked me to this day. Teachers like me. And I had an epiphany in the fourth grade when the teacher was like, okay, you're going to have to do a book report. I don't remember the name of the book, but some fourth grade book we had to read. And you can do either an oral or a written book report. And I was like, okay, that was your option. So the entire class, except for myself and this other girl, Sandy was her name. They all did written, and I couldn't even imagine. To me, it's not even a thing. It's like, oh, can you eat an apple or a grain of dirt? Like, it didn't (laughs) even make any sense, the combination. Like, oh, I don't have to do the work. I get attention. Uh, But the thing is that for so many of these humans out here, that would be death. Like, getting up in front of a room. That's when I had an epiphany. Like, people don't like to do that. No. So I was like, already I knew... To use an old-fashioned expression, was cut from a different cloth. I guess there's many cloths, and I was cut from a different one. Yeah. So that was an early like indication. And you know, I was into plays and and things like that. And I, you can see it behind me. I started playing the drums pretty early on. And by the way, side note: Do you know the song "Happiness"? By the way, from Charlie Brown. Yes. From, yeah. It's actually called You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. But yeah. yes, in that song, one of the lines is happiness is playing the drums in your own school band. Yes, it so is. So I was seeking that. I don't know. What and you is. had it. You had it right then. You know, okay, so Busy Phillips was just here to name drop uh, yes. two weeks ago. And uh-huh. she said, Kathy, I just knew at this young age that I had this thing. And that eventually other people would get it too. But I I was just doing this thing called I'm going and being on TV. And she said, and when I got Freaks and Geeks, it was kind of like, great. Now you all get what I've always known. Right. But here's the thing is like, that was true also for you. And most people, that is not how it goes. Right. Like you may have known from the age of nine ish that this is you cut from a different cloth. But then you actually got that validation from the world as well. Luckily, I was like, yeah, that's just luck. And I was determined. And I just gave myself until the age of 30 to give it a try. I was like, I'm going to give up my 20s. By the way, I didn't have any health insurance until I was 29 years old. Oh, my because God. my thinking was. If there was ever a time in my life where I wouldn't need a doctor, it would be my 20s. Right. <laughs> right. right? You don't want to you don't want to not have health insurance in your no. 70s. Right. That's when you're going to need probably a doctor. For- right. So you went on to be beloved. I mean, you were literally beloved in the stand up world, in the comedy world. There's a man named Judd Apatow who wrote really nice things about you on your album. Yep. People seem to think he understands talent. So it's not a thing where people usually get up and experience rejection over and over. Stand-up comedy, it it has that element, right? Where somebody's not going to laugh, and yet you go back and put yourself through this for decades, right? And there's got to be moments where somebody doesn't laugh. Yes. How on earth 
do you withstand that? That seems so hard. Well, two things. It was hard. And also, if things go bad for me on stage, you know it. I'm not one of those who's like, oh, he powered through. And I didn't know you were having it. Like, you see it sweating. You can hear it in my voice. There's like, I don't know if you've ever been so nervous where you can hear your voice is like quivery or something. Yeah, it's horrible. Have you ever been like that? Oh, yeah. It's awful. It's awful. So you become hyper self-conscious which is the opposite of what you want to be doing as a stand-up. It's the exact opposite. And I have a little trouble with, with nerves anyway. So I was, it, it was bad when that happened. But I had, I read something early on, and I wish I know who wrote it. They were talking about comedians, because I read everything I could read on comedians. This guy said that every comedian has bad sets. Every from you to Bob Hope at the time, it's like the, you know, like he was an institution, even right. bigger than like kind of Pryor and Carlin and all of these, you know, the young comedians that when I was a little kid. And they said that they all bomb. So if you do bomb, or as they say it, or have a bad set, you're in the same company as Bob Hope. So it's like, oh, so this is something uh, Bob Hope goes through, or Phyllis Diller, or Jack Benny. Yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, this is part of this job. And so like, I'm in good company now. Right. And I was saying right before we, we started recording today that um, yes. one of my favorite, favorite things that you have done is your appearances on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Thank you. And something really cool that Cheryl Hines just told me, which I think is like a lesson for life, is improv taught her to expect nothing. And then whatever you get, it's great. Right. Just go with it. And that is like how I experience you as a, as a human. It's like, I'm not expecting a ton here. Thank you what for the low expectations. Appreciate it. <laughs> no, the way that not, you- Excuse me, not even low expectations. Zero <laughs> expectations. That's below low. Below low. That's but this is my feeling below. of your outlook on life. <laughs> and then whatever you get from life, you're like, great. Yeah, yeah, I think that there is a level oh, of non-attachment yeah. mm -hmm. that you exude that she was also saying, and I was thinking, God, this is part of, I think, what makes us as an audience comfortable when yeah. people are in that frame of mind. There's not a, I have to get this person to laugh. My whole life is riding on this moment. Right, right. But that's not how most people engage with any of the things that they pursue. Oh, that's interesting. So you're, you're expanding it out. Yeah. You're so like is that zooming, you're not zooming in, you're zooming out. Zooming out. Is that part of it for you? It's sort of like oh, happy to just be in the doing and there's not a, a need for it to be a certain way or go a certain way. Great question. I don't know because I was able to achieve like a certain level of success. I'm not Ray Romano. And believe me, Ray Romano and I are like the same you're age. You're not? We had the same kind of career trajectory for a while. So, but I never had a, a sitcom or anything like that. So I know you think I'm this hyper successful guy or something like that, but I still think of myself as like, oh, I'm still right in the middle, shaking the bushes, trying to make things happen. That's the way I view myself. I feel like you have a different view because of maybe I've worked to Judd put me in some things and thinks I'm funny and we work together. I think part of it is that you continue to enjoy it. You enjoy oh, yeah, it. I do. That's what I'm getting at. It's like, yeah, that's there's no, no there, there. Like it's here, right? Yeah. So that I think is so gorgeous and unique and probably well, doesn't enjoy what they're doing. Like, even if you're an entrepreneur, I hope I'm saying that word right. How do you say it? Entrepreneur? Yeah. Entrepreneur. Everyone just kind of like. And it's newer. Yeah. Either one is good. So if you're that, like, I would think you would enjoy, even the challenges of like, oh, I didn't get enough orders. Oh, I can't deal with this vendor. Oh, the inspection guy is late. Guy or gal, guy or gal. And, but I assume on some level, you're like, oh, look at this. I'm building this thing that was not there before. And, and that's exciting despite these frustrations. Yeah. I think that time. we're in such a achievement oriented thing mm -hmm. that what you said earlier, which is just so indicative of who you are, that you would quote 
that song from your good man, Charlie Brown, that thing called happiness, I think people put on a destination. I think they put it on some, some arrival point. And until that happens, they do not grant themselves a feeling of happiness. And I, I think that you're happy all the time. So you think happiness is something you grant yourself? I think it's a decision like this is, I'm going to enjoy this, whatever this is. And I think part of the reason I think you are one of the most successful people I know is because (laughs) you're so rich in that feeling all the time. You're like, oh, I just played piano for an hour. Oh, I just hung out with Sarah Silverman. That was fun. We went over a bit. Oh, I just, it's, it's not about like, if I don't get this thing or that it's like, it's all just, there's a lot of enjoyment. There's a lot of enjoyment. There is, there is, but there's also a lot of frustration. There's a lot of disappointment. When you you think about me, not the worst. I have no disappointments. When you hit those moments where you are a human being and you get disappointed because it's been a long road of doing the things you do, what do you do to overcome that and like go back up to bat? It usually, if it's really bad, and especially if it's because I didn't prepare enough or it's because I was too lazy or I didn't take it seriously enough or I waited to the last second because there's sort of a last second juice I have in oh, life yeah. where, oh, you know what that is? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. How would you describe that? How would you describe that? That's sort of when I get this wave yeah. of whatever divine download or inspiration. It's only yeah. then. It's like right before yeah. you jump off the diving board. Yeah. Yep. yep. So I have that divine inspiration. Is that what you call it? Or download or download. Yeah. So, so I have a little of that, but I always feel like, well, if I was just completely prepared, but uh, if it's really bad, and especially if it's something that I felt like, oh, this is on me, it usually takes at least like a, at least a day to kind of let it process through my body. One day process is good. That's like, that's, if you got film, Back in the day, turned around in a day. That was like a quick. Right. Now, I don't know. Did we talk about my star searching experience? No, but I know all about it because my stepmom worked at Star Search and apparently was part of uh, casting you, which I don't even know if you knew. Yeah, they were so excited to have me because I had like a little. This was the one time in my career where I've had like juice. The rest of my career has always been like, oh, I'm going to make something happen. And all I wanted from that show was not to win Star Search, was just to at least get through one round, like just to be just to be a champion on television. And you can tell by my voice it didn't happen. And it was devastating and took me that one was probably the biggest because that took me like decades to get over, really. And then later I had like a kind of an epiphany about it. And I was like, oh, and, not, and then I was able to release it. But that took a long time. So I know you think I'm Mr. Smooth, but I'm, I'm not far from it. I'm you're from, not. Yeah. OK. Right, we're all learning things. Of go course, ahead, ahead. that was difficult. It's public. You had yes. an expectation to <laughs> just get somewhere and said nothing, not even French fries. You got nothing from it. So that's no, that's really, really hard. Here is the thing. You have gone on to be so successful as a writer, not just as a comic. You did a few things like write for Jimmy Fallon. It was the head monologue writer, but it was for Late Night with Jimmy Fallon. That was the show before The Tonight Show. That was Letterman and Conan's old show. Right. So you, I know that he actually used to open for you. You talked about this on your first episode. It's such a big deal that somebody would come to you and say, I want you to be in charge of making me funny, right? At that point in their career. And you've done it so many times. You've been asked to write so many things. Mm -hmm. When it comes to comedy, and I would assume that this is the case across the board, people sometimes don't know, like, how long do you keep going and say, like, you're just supposed to be resilient. And how long before you're like, this is a good barometer that you need to pivot. Right. Like, and I, right. and I think with comedy, that's like the most painful one to watch where people are just like, I'm going back at it. Like, I got it. I'm going to have grit. I read a book on grit. And you're just like, no, <laughs> no. What do you think that that looks like? You know, because I'm sure there are so many up and coming writers who reach out to you. And, and from that lens, how can you be oh. kind of a kind thing to give people a sense of when to 
right. at other gifts they might have and when to know like, no, you're just not putting in that sort of resilient mindset. Well, there's a certain kind of juice that like funny people have, but it comes in many different forms. And I learned this when I was writing on Late Night with Jimmy Fallon was there was like some writers that I was in charge of could write 40 jokes and four of them are really good. Okay. And another writer could write one joke or two and they were both brilliant. Mm -hmm. So it was like, who's the better writer? There is no answer. It's like everyone brings their own thing to the game. So I don't know. I try to be honest with someone. And this is what I would say, because I've encouraged people who want to do late night joke writing and I've discouraged people. And the people I encourage are like, here, you should talk to this guy or you should go to here and go to this monologue rehearsal and thing. And the people that I discourage and they might be listening right now is I'm always I will always use this thing is like that I could not hire you based on what I'm reading right here. That's what I would say. And it's yeah, I think that might be the softest way to say it. Yeah, but because, that's a very loving thing to do. Thank you. Yeah. To quote another musical, since clearly that's it's the cool thing to do is to quote musicals. Oh, what um, is that? What musical is that? Well, was... <laughs> Are you quoting a musical? Well, I haven't gotten to it yet. But oh. in the Sondheim musical Into the Woods, oh, okay. uh, there's a line where she says, nice is different than good. And this is the Little Red song in Into the Woods. Wow. And I do think that that's a big old problem in the world where people really want to be nice. But there's a cost. There's yeah. a cost to that. Well, I always, when I get compliments, even at the beginning of this interview, when you were kind of gushing a little bit. Oh, you're there, so cute. I always do this. I always, I always think of it as Kmart, where when you go to, you, you just take 20% off at the register. Like, oh. it's just, it's a special and just like, I appreciate what you're saying, but let's, I'm, this is not going to. Keep it real. Yeah. Not keep it real, but just like. Okay, because if I can only take compliments, that means every insult or thing is going to be a knife in me, right? Yes, yes. What is the quote? Like, they're both imposters. Have you heard that quote? No, but uh, something like that, right? Yeah, like, there's a quote. Like, neither one is true. Yeah, yeah. They're, both in, they're both beautiful imposters or something very right. poetic. This conversation is so fun, but before we keep going, we're just going to thank our sponsors. Amazon Music is a streaming platform for both music and podcasts. They have over 10 million free podcast episodes to listen to, including this show. Plus, Amazon Music also has plenty of music. In fact, they have over 75 million songs, thousands of music stations, and top playlists. With Amazon Music Unlimited, you can listen to any song anywhere offline with unlimited skips. And no matter what you're listening to, you can go hands-free with Alexa. I have a playlist of songs that always pump me up as I'm getting ready in the morning. Some of my favorite artists are... Of course, my friend Rachel Platten, Ben Rector, and Sarah Bareilles. I love that I can listen to this music hands-free without any ads. It's really such a great way to boost my mood, and it just gets your day started in the best way. For a limited time, new customers can try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days. No credit card required. Just go to amazon.com slash dreamjob30. That's amazon.com slash dreamjob30 to try Amazon Music Unlimited free for 30 days. Renews automatically, cancel anytime, terms apply. Here's a cool origin story I want to share with you. In a tiny apartment in Southern California, two college dropouts created a watch company that broke all the rules. With fair prices, unexpected colors, and clean original designs, Movement grew into one of the fastest growing watch brands, shipping to over 160 countries across the globe. Now Movement has expanded into blue light glasses that protect your eyes from screens, minimalist jewelry, and more style essentials that just don't break the bank. And on July 20th, Movement is celebrating their eight-year anniversary by running a huge site-wide sale. Every single thing is 28% off. That's 28 off all their best-selling watches, blue light glasses, jewelry, and more. I especially love the Malibu watch and the Starlet sunglasses, but they're all amazing, and it's all such a good price for the quality. Their sunglasses are super durable with UV-rated polarized lenses and timeless styles, and their premium blue light glasses not only make you look great, but filter 90% off of the most intense blue light rays from your digital screen so you can scroll comfortably. This is the perfect gift for family and friends. Movement is going all out for their eighth birthday with this huge sale, so join the celebration and take advantage of these price points before they go. Don't miss Movement's biggest sale of the year. Go to mvmt.com slash dreamjob and enjoy 28% off. That's 28% off site-wide at mvmt.com slash dreamjob. Join the movement. So segueing then very yes. awkwardly into your book, 
it is you're doing the hands. You're doing the hands. Right. Do this. What <laughs> are we doing the NPR. now? Yeah. So Wayne Fetterman, you wrote a book. It's called The History of Stand-Up. From Mark Twain to David Chappelle. People are very happy about this book. I have mm-hmm. read the reviews. People are very, very excited about it. I think people like the nostalgia. I think people like the the cool nuances and things that you've brought together. Before we go into more of sort of like the nitty gritty from sort of a just looking at it what was this experience like for you was this like a blast to go through all of this like from the beginning absolutely and i know you want to get into nitty and gritty because i was thinking of just doing nitty on this but you want to go the whole thing right yeah a little bit of both a little bit of both okay so i'll give you the nitty first yes that was, in, in a weird way, it was just a blast because I'm. this is something I've been interested in since basically high school. Basically, when I, as you know, I started out as a ventriloquist. So through that, I learned to do <laughs> ventriloquism from Edgar Bergen, who was a radio comedian, which is weird doing ventriloquism on radio. Okay. But that's how I started getting into these old timey guys, some of them who were dead, some who were like old, old timers. And so I've been interested in this like my whole life or my whole since I decided to become a stand up. So, yes, going back and especially now that I'm going back even further to the 1800s, it's so exciting. The first comedy recordings and I I love it because I feel like. It's just like this continuum. This is the way I describe it. It's just like new comedians take the field each generation. And so, and then, so they sort of take what's happened before and sort of maybe rebel against it a little or adapt technologies to it. And so I try to connect Mark Twain with Amy Schumer. Like I try to connect Will Rogers to what so cool. a Chappelle or Mulaney is doing. It's so and they're cool. sort of at their core doing the same thing. They're standing on stage trying to make people laugh. So whatever that experience is, we talked about it earlier. We talked about it, how tough it is when people aren't laughing, especially for me. But other comedians, let me give you a great example. Please do. Dave Chappelle, as you called him David Chappelle. I don't know why, but uh, Dave Chappelle went to the Apollo Theater and they have one of the most legendary amateur nights at the Apollo Theater. Been going on since, God, I'm going to say 34, maybe 35, 1935. The longest running in the history of showbiz, amateur night. Famous. People go and crowds there. How would you describe them, Kathy? Brutal. They're like, if they love you, they love you. If they hate you, not only do you they boo you, but there's a guy that will sweep you off stage or tap dance you off stage or, you know, shoot mm. you off stage with a cap gun. It's a thing. Like, it's a fun thing. So he went there, does his, you know, Chappelle stuff. He's a kid and it starts going south. It starts Fetterman. He's like Wayne Fetterman. He's just <laughs> like, he's going back. And the crowd turns, they boo him. The guy Sandman, like, tap dances him off stage and he gets off stage. He's like, okay, I've been booed off the Apollo. Like this is it. And then afterwards he was like standing outside. He was like, wow, that just happened. And I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm going to go get something to eat. I uh, hang out with my friends. I'm going to do some more comedy. Like that could have been the worst thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm totally fine. And she said, from that moment on, he was bulletproof. He said nothing ever phased him, not doing SNL, not doing any. It was just like he took the worst experience oh, that might that. have shaken a comedian like myself. And instead of making it a, oh, my God, I hope that never happens again. Oh, I'm going to do everything to avoid that. It's just like, oh, well, that's the word. All right. Well, that's incredible, incredible right? Yeah. Well, I, I often say, I, I talk to all of these people who write uh-huh. in or whatever it is, and, and they'll yeah. ask me these questions about this path or this passion or this business. And I, I find myself saying, this isn't a business problem. It's not the path. It's just a courage problem. Like it just comes down to courage. Right. And at some point, that courage just feels like like a very, a very scary leap. And so- 
it doesn't take much for people to feel like that's going to be the evidence that they will not Mm -hmm. continue on. And so that is the most universal thing that I hear, right? So that story is the complete opposite of that. It's like, you don't wonder if it's going to fail. You have the most humiliating experience and then use it to say, okay, I got this. I can do that. Yeah, I can can handle this. I really, I mean, even telling the story, I get a a little bit emotional because I'm just thinking about what was going through his mind and. Right. How many people who are listening right now have an idea that's worth (laughs) pursuing or some cool thing that could make someone on their street have a better kind of day for whatever reason. Yeah. But the rejection is so hard to even consider it's it's never happening. And then what happens? The number one regret of people in their last moments is I didn't do that thing. That's what people say. I didn't do that. More thing. than I didn't pay the insurance premium. More than that. <laughs> exactly. That would be a huge regret. So the question is about when you said someone like Mark Twain, how does that relate to someone like Amy Schumer and all yes. of these people yes. and they're making people laugh? Can I ask what else are they inherently doing like is there something that you've come to realize about stand-up comics that they are changing the narrative in a society or or standing up for the person who doesn't have anyone to stand up for them or dealing with pain in a way that we can all sort of like commiserate is there things like this that really create the institution of stand-up comedy well i mean there's so many different kinds of comics that are doing different kinds of things but they're all connected by this mission statement, I'll call it, of like, oh, you're giving money or, you know, you're buying a ticket to laugh. Think about laughter. It's an involuntary reaction. So you have to, it puts you in a good mood. It's usually a surprise. That's why you react like that. So I don't think so. I, I, I do think that being a comedian is a little like being a priest in that, not in the, horrible part of being being a priest, but in that it's a calling. So let's go back earlier to Wayne Fetterman and Sandy in the fourth grade at East Silver Spring Elementary School in Maryland. And when we got to do the oral report, like apparently the biggest fear of most people is speaking in front of an audience. We've heard this. I can't believe that like more than death, like it's just surprising to me, needless to say. I think. But if you add that plus the expectation of making people laugh on top of talking to, this is not just I'm doing a TED talk and I'm going to talk about, hey, this is how uh, the, you know, the gold rush happened in the 1800s. You have to make people laugh at a consistent level and to end, usually end with something super funny. And, you know, so there's a whole another level of it. So, the fear behind that, I think, for most people are just like, that. I don't even want to think about doing anything like that. I love comics. I love them. They make me laugh. They make me think. Some like Carlin or something like that might make me, oh, make my views on religion think a little bit. Although I'm working on a documentary on George Carlin right now, and he said something really interesting because I don't do that kind of comedy. I don't do any kind of right. like, oh, I'm going to make a case. I'm going like, to be like a lawyer and make a comedic case on why religion is this or why yeah. the government is this. But he says, I'm not trying to change anyone's mind. He goes, and I can smell comedians that are doing that, that are trying to push their agenda on someone else. I just want people to go, oh, George is thinking about something. I want people to think that I'm thinking. Interesting distinction, right? It is an interesting distinction. To me, to me. So anyway, so to bring it back to the whole thing, yes, I do think some comedians do have an agenda and are trying to whatever, social justice or thing, and others are just trying to observe, like Jerry Seinfeld does, four minutes on cotton balls, like the ball, cotton balls. Like it seems impossible you could get one joke out of it, let alone a whole routine. Yeah. That's an interesting example with Seinfeld because I was going to ask you what you think about the Woody Allen understanding that comedy is tragedy plus some time. 
But right. he doesn't seem like Seinfeld doesn't seem upset. Like there's it doesn't seem like his childhood was that difficult. Like it was kind of just middle of the road, like grew up on Long Island. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of other people, do you see that in the book when you were going back? Like, yes. Is, is there an initial pain that gets people to want to make other people laugh? I think so. I think there's a little kind of a longing for something. And again, I, I bring it back to the priesthood. It's just a calling. You're just like, oh, you must have made somebody laugh at some time. You just have to. I can't imagine you would have never made anyone laugh and you're like, you know, I think I'm going to try stand up, but did maybe you, who knows? Did you see knows? any sort of weird consistency that like a good majority of these people had like lost a parent early on or anything like I, that? I guess there's one consistency. They tend to be, and Scheinfeld's a ex- perfect example of not that, but they tend to be like the youngest or an only child or something like that. They tend to be the youngest in a family because it's usually they need attention. And also you develop verbal acuity at an earlier age if you have older siblings. So you're already like ahead of the the idiots in your class, you know what I mean? Who are just like normally progressing through through school. So yes, that I've noticed that they tend to be a little more, it's a very, it used to be very rare that someone was wealthy and a stand-up because there was just so many other avenues. But that's, that has changed in the last few years. Right. One thing that that sometimes we talk about at home is like you want the comedian to be somewhat self-deprecating. Like it's not so fun to see like the hottest guy with the most money <laughs> come out and then try to be funny. Like it doesn't. I know. Work. Yeah. There's, is I that know, true? There's, there, are, are we a little is, bit of the, the misfits? Is that a little bit of who the comedian is? It is a little bit of a misfit. Neurotic. Yeah, I think it's also a little people who just see the world a little differently. And then like that juxtaposition of how you see the world and how they see the world. And when they mash up, you're like, oh, that's delightful. I never thought of when in Taco Bell, when the thing goes through and they put the sour cream and they're using a caulking gun. Like it's, you know what I mean? You just, you observe. And so I don't really talk in the book a lot about comedy theory, what all of these things that you're asking about. But I would say there's a certain just kind of a juice that you're born with that you can develop. You definitely, I've seen it. I saw Chris Rock from his earliest to becoming a legend among, you know what I mean, an all-timer. I saw the whole thing. It's incredible to have watched all these people sort of find their sound, find their... Okay, there's a few more things I want to ask you, but first a quick ad break. When you're running a business, the last thing you want to worry about are HR issues, wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap. They're an average of $70,000 a year. But Bambi is here to help. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat, and they're going to customize your policies to fit your business. They can even help you manage your employees day by day. Again, it's just $99 a month, and you can use them month to month with no hidden fees and cancel anytime you want. I always say that you want to spend time working on your business instead of in your business, and having an awesome person to handle HR will really free up your bandwidth to focus on your growing mission and doing the parts of your business that light you up. So I love that Bambi is making this service available. Go to Bambi.com slash dream job right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash dream job spelled Bambi to the B-E-E.com slash dream job. In this episode, we've been talking about finding happiness, but it's not always easy. That's why I'm grateful for services like BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You connect in a safe and private online environment, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours, all without ever having to sit in any uncomfortable waiting rooms. It's easy and free to change counselors, and BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. They even have financial aid available. Anything you share is confidential, and you're going to get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions and send a message to your counselor anytime. Seeing a therapist has really helped me so much throughout my life. And I think it's so important to talk things out with someone if you're struggling with anything, whether it's your mental health or your relationships or even overall life goals. So 
it's really just so great to see that BetterHelp is providing the support, especially when there's just so much extra stress right now in the world. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dream job. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. That's betterhelp.com slash dream job for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. So let me ask you this. When you finish the book and you yes. put it out there, what were you hoping that the reader walks away with? Well, again, I don't know why they have to walk away. Couldn't they just put it down and <laughs> contemplate it? Let me think. Well, I wanted the book to be a breezy, casual read, first of all. And I wanted it to be easily digestible. And I wanted it to be filled with information. So it was like a triple thing. Just triple like, indie. Yeah. And I wanted to show the the arc of it all. Like, for example, right in the beginning, I talk about Mark Twain. He's on the cover of the book. There's a comedian I talk about before him. But Mark Twain, every year, except for last year because of COVID, they give the Mark Twain prize to the comedian who, and sometimes it's not stand-ups, but most of them have been stand-ups. So, like, here's this guy, Sam Clemens, who does this incredible comedy tour to, by the way, make money. That was his motivation. You know, and he's connected to Eddie Murphy because Eddie Murphy is standing there with Mark Twain's bust. And like, how are these two guys? What's going on? There's like, it's really interesting to me. So like, oh, we're paying tribute to the comedy that Mark yeah. Twain. And Twain is not known only for that, those comedy tours. He's known for these incredible novels, right? Yeah. You really succeed. What is it? I love that you really did <laughs> succeed in making people feel like it's a easy to digest quick read. Because when I heard you were going to write this book, I thought, oh, this is going to be this colossal, huge, like encyclopedia. It's going to be hundreds of pages. Right. It's going to feel intimidating. You're going to have to like pace yourself. What I love about it is it's what, less than 200, something like <laughs> yes, that? Yes, it's 150 like, pages. Yeah, yeah, it's less than 200 pages. And there's even at the end, there's like a timeline for those who can't even do the the 148 pages or something. Yeah. And so if you're listening, let me give you this as a gift. You can read this book and then go to a dinner party, which you can do now, and you will be interesting and knowledgeable. <laughs> and it took you an hour and a half. Like, it's awesome. And these are the, what's cool is you also sort of cut out anything that feels like you're just filling up things because pretentious oh, no. people have to like add that they know all the other things. Like, no, you just got to some of the coolest things. And this is one of the questions I was going to ask you. What were some of those things that surprised you that you wrote in the book? Like, can you give us an example of some of the things you found out about some of these people? And you were like, oh, that's legitimately surprising. Oh, OK, here's one. I always thought Bob Hope was like the guy that started entertaining the troops overseas. Yeah, you know, same. Yeah. No, there was a woman named Elsie Janice who did impressions who'd also sang, did sing-alongs and things like that, would do funny songs, bring people up, a lot of improv kind of stuff. During World War I, 20 years before the USO existed, there was no USO. It was just her, and the YMCA was over there helping out a little bit. I was just reading her book about it. So Elsie Janice, she's known as like the sweetheart of the American Expeditionary cool. Force. And so her story is fascinating. Yes, yeah, she's not a... This is the other thing. Women who now a woman stand up is like that. That didn't really exist. They sort of had to Trojan horse it with, by using music. So like Mae West would do songs and be funny. That Fanny Bryce would do songs and be funny. Elsie Janice do songs and be funny. So that you kind of had to do that until there was a couple comedians, Moms Mabley and a woman named Jean Carroll. So anyway, so I was fascinated by Elsie's story, like how she got over there. That is so cool. And the trauma, the trauma she went through, like reading that book of like she would entertain in the hospitals. And that war is brutal. Horrible, horrible. Brutal war. Mustard gas, people blinded, the whole thing. And, and a lot of people would die within days after seeing her. And, and she did like six hundred shows over the whatever the few months that she that's did. insane yeah uh, so that was really inspiring and i'm learning like about her and i would say this like almost every page of that book 
could be a book in itself. Like, obviously, you could write a book about Elsie Janice. Yeah. And in the book, I kind of hint that this is because I quote other books. I'm like, oh, the story of the comedy store strike was written about in this book. And the story of uh, Letterman and Leno's battle to take over the Times was written in this book. Like, almost every page could be a book in itself. So that's why it was fun to write it in the most concise, breezy, easygoing style. It's so cool that you you did this. Um, speaking of female comics, Eliza Schlesinger was here. And I, I was asking her about female comics. And, uh-huh. you know, does she feel like there is a, a decent amount of funny female comics out there? And she said, I just have to say how often people will slam oh, female comic. And she's like, do you know how many times I'm sitting in the back of a club and there's like one guy after another and they're not good like like what i don't right. even, there's a lot I don't of even mediocre. know why it's brought up as like a, a gender thing because you know in terms of the numbers there's not as many women and then of of the ones that are funny she goes i actually think there's a there's a decent amount if you look how many not funny men there are so it was just interesting because i i think i take on that stereotype personally i do so i love that you just brought up that thing about elsie janice but what i think is really cool about you is that you like you said before, you're like, I'm so curious. I think you were saying it as a joke, but you really are. And I mm-hmm. think it's generous and unusual that somebody would shine this much of a light on other people, especially because, look, most people just want to keep talking about themselves. You could have spent all these hours writing a book about my journey. Things. Yeah. You, yeah, you wrote about all these people and you yeah. loved doing it. It's so clear how enthusiastic you are. I think that that's rare and cool and is there another from the other side of being surprised? Was there something that you felt that you uncovered about someone that was a triumph? Was there something that somebody had gone through and maybe not gotten enough credit for, or maybe endured something and you felt like, I'm so glad I could put this in the book so that people could read about it? Oh, I see. Like they're getting their due. Yeah. Something. I mean, there was a couple old people. There was a couple. Oh, I don't mean old. I mean, people from the early 19. There was a guy named Marshall. P. Wilder from the early 1900s that I write about that I don't think anyone really writes about. Maybe the first guy, maybe the first guy, Artemis Ward. He's the one that started doing these comedy. I know, crazy name. So Artemis, you know, Artemis went on stage. That was a fascinating story of like how he got the idea to take, because he was a funny writer. He did the opposite. Like most comedians are like, oh, I'm a great, I'm Ray Morano. I'm a funny comedian. I'm going to repurpose this to a sitcom. I'm funny comedian, Richard Pryor. I'm going to, I'm in movies. So that's usually the path is you become the comedian and that opens up these doors. He was a very popular, funny writer who decided to tour. It wasn't called Stannis. The word stand-up didn't even exist until 1947. So that was like, like how he got that idea and then did it. And was so successful at it. And of course, who sees him in Nevada? A young writer, Sam Clemens. It's like, what is this? I didn't even know this was possible. People will pay money to just sit and laugh at this guy. Yeah, so that starts. And then Clemens becomes Twain. He does his tour. And then, you know, cut to Dave Chappelle getting a Mark Twain Award. Right. Or Bill Burr selling out Madison Square Garden. Yeah, That's like how big comedy is. It's crazy. It's bigger than Madison Square Garden. Uh, Kevin Hart sold out Lincoln Financial Field, which is a football stadium outside Philly. A football stadium. Hey, what are we doing? Let's go watch a comic in a football stadium. I mean, it is mind. So anyway, so all of it. And even there's a guy who has a special out now called Bo Burnham. Like his ascent is so inspiring because he's he was the first one to really take advantage of the internet at the YouTube, right? 16 years old. And then what did he do? Use that fame to work on his act in the clubs, very much in a way like an Artemis Ward. And so he became a good club comedian, even though I think he has some anxiety about that. But yeah, it was fascinating. It's so interesting. I think, like I said before, the word enthusiasm, you know, they say, now I'm going to sound really pretentious, but they've done these <laughs> fMRIs on people's brains to find out like what lights up the most in us and it's enthusiasm. And so what we found, we found, we, I was a part of it. Um, yeah. What they found. Were you this, wearing a gown? Or were you a, wearing a cave thing? and the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. I don't know why I said cape. There's a coat. Cape? Did you have a, a clipboard? Coat. Did you have the clipboard? Clipboard, a whole thing. 
<laughs> and they find out that it's not only if you're enthusiastic, but if yeah. someone you're around is enthusiastic, it actually gives you the same. And so being around you is such a pleasure because you're enthusiastic about all of it from the things you're working on to life and people. And it's, it is such a generous way to be with your energy. It just is just to be totally like that, like excited and, and just delighted in life. It really makes it kind of a pleasure for people to be around. And I I've said that to you before. I think that part of your success is people legitimately love being around you. There's a humility and a sweetness and it's just what it is. So you're going to have to deal with it. I'm dealing um, with it. Yeah. You also have a podcast, which I believe is, is not currently being recorded, but it's, it's, it's there for people to go. It's listen. there and we're doing a new season. We're oh, doing, you are? Yes. Yeah. So you're just on a hiatus, but you're doing a new yes. season. Great. Yes. So history of standup. We'll put a link to that. Now, what can people expect? It's an audio version, kind of of the book a little bit. Okay. And it's very produced. Our model was like This American Life yeah, or so Radio good. Lab. So there's a music bed. It's a bed of music underneath. Not a cot. Not a comforter. No. Not a duvet. A whole bed. <laughs> yeah, it's very produced. And if you're into stand-up, if you're not into stand-up, do not listen to it. I promise <laughs> you, you're that. not going to like it. It's not going to be fun. But if you're into stand-up comedy, kind of the history of it, which I am, and you want to, it's, I think you might find it interesting. And is there anything else that you can send us so that we can be a part of your, your right. thing? Well, there is a documentary that Judd did that I co-produced on with Gary Shan- about Gary Shanling called The Zen Diaries of Gary Shanling. And if you're interested in like what the life of a stand-up is or the life of a creative person, good and bad. Anyway, I that think was that was one of my be- favorite things I've ever watched. I had and no what idea. What did you get out of it? What did okay, you cuz so, I don't like talking about it. Well, I didn't know the whole thing with his yeah. brother. Right. And it literally defined his life. You just get to see how much of a through line that is. And no one knows it. Right. He's out there. He's funny. He's carrying us all. Right. And suffering. That was really, really beautiful. And then that little like conversation between him and Tom Petty, the amount of ahas that you can get. It doesn't matter what your your path is. It, It was beautiful. Right. Thank you. We are going to put a link to the book. We're going to, is there anything that you want to send people to? Like, is there sort of like buy the book here and it's better because you get the no, you. I mean, I mean, Amazon would be the, the easiest, but if you want to support a local book, there's other links to other stores, but I would use Amazon. Okay. So guys, here's what we're going to do. If you enjoyed this, if this was not a painful experience for you, <laughs> Wayne and myself, is it Wayne and I, or is it me and Wayne? What is it? Of course. I know you all, the person always goes first. I do know that. So it would be Wayne and me or Wayne and I. Wayne and I, Wayne and me. The two of us, August 19th, we're going to do a get together on Zoom. It's free to hang out with the two of us. Yeah. We're going to talk about this book. We'll answer questions. Doesn't necessarily have to be about the history of stand-up, but that's kind of going to be the jumping off point. Like Jumping off point. I might even do a couple... Quiz? Quizzes, questions with a couple prizes, because I do that sometimes, maybe. Maybe right. even a signed copy of a book might be a prize. Could yes. Be. Yeah. Could be. Could be that. So we're going to do that. And if you want to be a part of that, you're just going to go to kathyheller.com slash Wayne. It's W-A-Y-N-E. And you're going to get to be a part of it. So you can sign up there. It's free. If you want to have the book ahead of time, so you can you can get it at a bookstore, library, go find it. And if not, we'll... Amazon, we'll still... maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's not necessary to get it's in. Not it's not required. not a required thing. Not part of that thing. Not a I don't want to be that purchase. guy. But we, yeah. we are going to hang out. We're looking forward to it. We can kibitz, as they say in French. Wayne Fetterman, this was a delight. Thank you for making the time. And we're going to be following along. It, What's so. your handle? What's your social handle? I have two of them. Unfortunately, I was kind of idiotic. I should have had one that goes across all platforms. I know that now. Didn't at the time. Too late now. Ship has sailed. <laughs> Twitter is at Fetterman. Instagram is at Insta Fetterman. That's a disaster. I know. 
That's like 101, right? That's 101 brand building. I don't know. I'm bad at it. I'm not good at branding. But I will say this. For our Q&A and our back and forth, that's going to be kathyheller.com slash Wayne. Oh, good. I love it. What should because we Because, you know, I do that joke about my name. I like the name I Wayne. Would... Go ahead. What does it mean? Like to run or to play? No, it means to diminish slowly over time. That's true. <laughs> that happens around the same time as that uh, book report thing. I learned that my name meant to diminish slowly over time. And you lived up to it. You are the best. This was so fun. So, so thank you for being here. Okay. And we'll see you in a month. That was just so much fun. Remember, you can join us. We're doing a Q&A. Wayne is going to be there. We're going to hang out and do this live session with you on Zoom, August 19th. It's completely free. You can sign up at kathyheller.com slash Wayne, W-A-Y-N-E. Okay, here are the takeaways. Number one, everyone bombs, even the pros. It's part of the job. When that happens, you know you're in good company. Number two, enjoy all the parts of this journey, even the challenges. Number three, happiness is a choice. Number four, it's okay to take time to process the disappointments and release them. Number five, funny comes in many different different forms. Number six, nice is different than good. Number seven, you could get booed off stage, but you're still here. You're still alive. Now you're bulletproof. And number eight, there's a juice, a calling you're born with that you can develop. We made a workbook from this episode that you guys can go take a look at. There's some takeaways and some exercises that you can put these lessons into some action steps. It's completely free. If you want to download it, you can go to kathyheller.com slash 482. Okay, now I want to give a shout out to some of our awesome alumni. So Deb said, I left my day job at the end of 2018 to work full time in my coaching healing business. I've been personally coached by Kathy Heller at her inaugural glow retreat, and I was part of the accelerator program. My first book was released on Thursday, and I woke up on Friday morning with a message from my publisher letting me know that my book hit national and international bestseller status. Did I wait for all the conditions to be perfect before I wrote it? No. Did I turn in a really messy first draft? Yes. Did I trust myself to meet my deadlines, even though crazy outside circumstances kept popping up? Yes, because I set up systems to help me. Is my book perfect? No, but it is a bestseller. Done really is better than perfect. Like Kathy says, do it messy, don't give up, and just keep creating. Oh my gosh, Deb, I love you. Uh, I love spending time with you at that retreat at my home. What is that? Almost two years ago. Congrats. Congrats. This is incredible. I'm so proud of you for writing that first messy draft and letting it evolve into a best-selling book. You're such a rock star. You deserve all of this. Let's all go support Deb. Her book is called, Is This Job My Jam? The Guide for Grownups Who Still Don't Know What They Want to Be. Such a perfect title for this audience. You guys are going to love it. Thank you just so much for being here. I know your time is the most valuable thing that you have. So it means the world that you spend it listening to this show. We have more amazing episodes in the pipeline. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow on Spotify wherever you listen. Don't forget that this free workbook from this episode is at kathyheller.com slash 482. And if you know anyone who would find this helpful, you can send them the link. You guys can do the workbook together. You can talk about the episode. You can listen to the episode and then do the workbook and share your ideas. I always feel that having someone by my side is really the best way to actually follow through on my goals. Having that sort of accountability buddy can really make a difference. And if there's something from this episode that clicked with you, then post about it on your Instagram and tag me at kathy.heller and tag He's at Insta Fetterman because I know that he would just love to see that you guys got something from this conversation. You guys are the best. I'll leave you with a song of mine and I'll talk to you tomorrow. If dreams are made of paper, let's make paper mache. We'll build a world together with our hands. And if hope is made of helium, we'll be like balloons and float away. Wouldn't that be grand? Nothing lasts forever, so we're all a little scared. But we're not giving up that easy, no, we wouldn't dare. Hey, hey, Mr. Sun, don't you set tonight.
to set tonight Cause we still got a million plans for the day